We were told that a member of the men's team was going to be transitioning to the women's team. There wasn't much I could do about it. In this episode, I sit down with Paula Scanlon, a former University of Pennsylvania swimmer and teammate of transgender athlete Leah Thomas. We couldn't even talk to ourselves. There were people who were scared to even voice their opinions in their own head. Now, Paula Scanlon is advocating for banning biological men from women's sports. They brought in psychological counseling, advising us to make an appointment with them if we were uncomfortable with the situation. In my mind, that's almost equivalent to re-education. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Paula Scanlon, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. So Paula, you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, a lot fewer people knew who you were. <laughs> and so you, of course, you were um, interviewed for What is a Woman um, by Matt Walsh. And recently you actually decided to come out and say who you were and, and make a statement. So chart this course to me. How did, how did all this happen? Yeah, so I was approached to be on the What is a Woman documentary when I was still in college. I was still actually competing on the Penn Swim team. And there was this opportunity to be part of a documentary and they pitched it to me as, you know, there's going to be people from all sides talking about this gender ideology as an issue. They needed representation from the athletic side. So obviously I did that. I thought about being revealed in it, but the documentary was originally supposed to come out when I was going to be still in college. Um, so that definitely seemed a little bit scary to speak about my experience at Penn while I was still a student. Um, so then I decided to go anonymous and in the past year I've sat on it and wish I had kind of done the right thing. I think the biggest thing for me was just feeling like I wasn't courageous enough at the time to do it and I really needed to get out there in this past year. So that's something that eventually came true in about May. We started doing these interviews and now it's July. and. Here I am. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about doing the right thing. You said you, you should have done the right thing. What would have been the right thing to do? The right thing would have been to speak about it when I was going through it and not hid behind a cloak of anonymity. I think that's it's very easy to talk about something when you don't have to worry about putting your face behind it and you don't have to worry about the consequences. Um, so obviously I understand people who still do that. I was in that position a year ago, but the right thing would be to speak the truth and be comfortable putting your name behind the truth. Let's start a little bit earlier. Um, you know, just how did you, you became of course a competitive swimmer. This is how you got into the documentary in the first place, but give me a sense of, of your, kind of how you got and what your, um, I guess your acumen and swimming is, yeah. Yeah, so I started competitively swimming when I was eight years old. Um, our town had actually built a really nice new pool um, and my parents thought it would be a good after school activity for me. Um, I didn't take it very seriously until I was in sixth grade when my brother went to college and I really wanted to have my own thing. My brother is a very strong academic student and I was not as strong in school. Um, so I needed to have an outlet that was mine and that's where swimming came in. And through sixth grade, through senior year of high school, it was 20 hours a week, morning practices starting at five in the morning, right after school. It's, it's a huge time commitment and obviously once I got to that level, I knew I needed to continue to do it in college and I ended up at the University of Pennsylvania where I continued to swim there. And when did you notice that something weird was happening? I guess is the question. Yeah, so in the fall of 2019, we were told that a member of the men's team was gonna be transitioning to the women's team. 
Um, but this wasn't going to happen until the next season. And then the next season was canceled because of COVID. So it was actually two seasons later that um, this, a member of the men's team was on the women's team and in the women's locker room. Um, so it was at that point I realized it was actually happening. I think up until then I had hoped or thought maybe it wouldn't come true or maybe somebody will change the rules and this won't actually happen. But in the fall of 2021, that's when I realized it was happening and there wasn't much I could do about it. Right. So in 2019, when this came up as an idea, had there been any sort of, has, had anything been changing? Had there been any hints of some kind of new policy? Because obviously this is a pretty radical new policy, right? Yeah, I hadn't heard anything about it. Um, I actually, after we were told this, I looked up the rules and I did see that the rules were a year of hormone replacement therapy, but I wasn't quite sure what that even entailed. So at this point, I was wondering who came up with these rules, where they came from, how long these rules had been possible, thinking, oh, any man could become a woman in any sports team. Um, so it was at that point I started to see that the NCAA had these policies that were deeply flawed, uh, that didn't take into account skeletal structure, mus muscle mass, lung capacity, heart size, and other factors that differentiate men and women. So you were, you were seeing this even before you were competing between, with, me, with men? Yeah, I, I just looked it up when we were told this because I thought to myself, how is this allowed? And I wanted to know what the policy was for allowing it. And that's when I started to dig deeper on what the NCAA actually allowed. And they did allow for men to become women only after a year of deciding that they wanted to switch. It seems a kind of an obvious thing that men would have a biological advantage, right? A phenotypical advantage is another, another way to put it, um, over women. And but somehow this became contentious at some point. Do you remember when? Yeah, I think when we started talking about what the policy was and how it wasn't fair, people started throwing out the word transphobic. Um, that's when I started hearing that. And I, I never thought that pointing out that men and women are different was something that would you know, classify as hate speech. Um, but that was something I found as I questioned more. It was more about questioning authority. It was saying, oh, maybe the NCAA is wrong or the university is wrong, or the system is wrong. It's when you start to raise those questions, that's when they start labeling you as a hater or a transphobe or you know all those other insults that they like to throw. I definitely want to talk about that more. Um, you know, you mentioned something about the locker rooms. This is something that has been prominent in Riley Gaines' uh, testimony in Congress and in other places. So w explain that whole situation to me. Yeah, so funny enough, at the beginning when this member of the men's team, formerly Will Thomas, announced the transition, we weren't sure if Will was actually going to be in the locker room with us. And so in that one year of hormone replacement therapy, Will, still Will at the time, was uh, still competing for the men's team and changing in the men's locker room. But to kind of start getting Will more acquainted with the women's team, some people would invite Will into the women's locker room, but would give us a warning would say, hey guys, Will's coming in, is everyone decent? Mm. So at that point in time, in fall 2019, a warning was justified. But for some reason, two years later, it, there was no warning, and it was every single day that we changed in the same locker room. So I was asking what, you know, just because you've declared you're a woman two years ago, 
then it's somehow okay when everything about you is still the same. You just say that you identify differently. That's something I found very, very confusing, that you know, just because you declare something is true in a short amount of time, it is suddenly true. What was the reaction of the women in the room? And Some girls were definitely very uncomfortable. Um, a lot of girls would go and change in the bathroom stalls, so they would be like completely covered and confined to their own space. People brought it up to the coaches, um, but unfortunately, you know, they, we were told that if someone's part of the team, they should deserve the same privileges as everyone else on the team. And in their defense, that does actually make a lot of sense, right? If we're going to say Leah is part of the women's team and is a woman, why would Leah not have the same rights as the rest of us? So in that sense, I think it's it's consistent, but definitely not the right thing for women and definitely very challenging to be in a situation that we weren't really discussed, we didn't discuss about it. We didn't say, oh, maybe there's an alternative on how we can set up this locker room. Or maybe um, there's another family stall that we could use or whatever the solution was, there was just never a discussion about it. Right, but so I guess the idea was you, would, you wanted to do nothing to, to stigmatize or something like that. That was the sort of the approach. Yeah, that's, that's what we were told, that we have to be inclusive in every single part for someone to feel comfortable with their new gender identity. And it's all about being inclusive at every single part of women um, spaces and women's rights that they need to now be included on. And then what about the competitions themselves? How did things change? Yeah, so at the beginning of the season, we actually weren't really sure how fast everyone was going to be swimming. Again, Ivy League, the Ivy League canceled all competition for the 2020 to 2021 school year. So there was not a single sports competition for swimming at all. And a lot of people didn't swim at all in that year off. Um, so in general, we weren't really sure who was going to be fast and who was going to be slow because a year off is a lot of time. Um, so we weren't sure, but definitely the, the first meet we swam against Columbia actually, and it was very, very obvious that Leah was going to be a very dominant swimmer for the season. Um, just destroyed the competition and uh, the events that they, that they swam. So um, it was definitely obvious, but I didn't know at that point, I didn't know if Leah was going to win an NCAA title. I knew it was going to be a possibility based on um, how fast they were but I did not know if it was going to come true. And obviously it ended up coming true, which was the most dramatic outcome of the entire situation, in my opinion. But I, I guess what I'm curious about is, I mean, we're, we're, how were how were people on the team dealing with this situation, I guess? Yeah, at the beginning, you could talk to people. You could have one-on-one -on -one conversations with anyone on the team, and people had difference of opinions. Some people said, oh, I don't really care that much about the locker room, but you know, I don't like that I'm losing my spot on the relay. Or someone else would say, oh, I don't like that the record board is now going to have Leah's name. Or someone would say, oh, I don't like that Leah's able to score points against other teams. Everyone had their own varying comfortability with the situation. But in general, I would say most people you would have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with would be uncomfortable by it. To the extent that varied, obviously. but everyone had at least some level of uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortability with it. And that was something I found very interesting, but as the season went on and the university started coming in and telling us to stop speaking about it and not to go to the media and that Leah swimming was a non-negotiable, 
we couldn't even talk to ourselves. There were people who were scared to even voice their opinions in their own head. There were people in their own minds that changed their opinion. There was a girl who was very upset by it, and she suddenly changed her opinion after meeting with the school. And I think her parents also told her as well that there's nothing you can do about it, so you might as well be supportive. This is, uh, you know, there's been a you know, transformation of schools in general and around these many issues, right? This, this of course, being one of them. And so why don't you tell me a little bit more about that, about how the university treated this whole situation? Yeah. So Penn like to ignore issues as much as they could. Obviously, they don't want to get involved with something controversial. So they never met with us directly until it started to become a big media story. So after a meet in December when uh, Leah broke a bunch of records, it started becoming a huge national headlining story. And that's when the university finally came in and had our, their first meeting with us as a team, which was way too late in my opinion. I think we should have had conversations earlier on and listened to the people on the team and what they thought about it and given us warning that this was gonna be a controversial situation, but they never did that. It was only after the media started knocking on people's doors and wanting quotes and um, wanting to write stories about this that they told us not to speak to the media. The media is not our friend and we will regret speaking out if, if we do. And it was this meeting that it just put us in shock because they brought a bunch of um, specialists to this meeting. They said, oh, this is a special panel. And it was a member from the LGBT Center that said we were going to start having mandatory team meetings with the LGBT Center. They brought in psychological counseling, uh, advising us to make an appointment with them if we were uncomfortable with the situation. And they did say very clearly, Leah swimming is a non-negotiable. And they said, we're here to help you provide services to make that OK. So they wanted us to be OK with it. Um, and I think bringing in psychological services, I think, was a crazy step. I understand bringing in the athletic department. I understand bringing in the head of the athletic department, even. And I understand even bringing in the LGBT center because this is an LGBT issue that they wanted us to, you know, figure out. But psychological counseling was scary because, in that, in my mind, that's almost equivalent to re-education. That really showed me that they wanted us to think differently, not just help us be comfortable with the situation that we were in. Mm. So, okay, I t tell me a little bit more about this. So, because, okay, so typically counseling, you have some issue, you go to the counselor or psychological counseling, psychotherapy, something like that, you get, you figure something out that, that, that you need to. How, how is this different? Are you did you actually go to one of these sessions? I did not go right. to one with the school, but I actually worked on my own with a outside of school therapist. Mm -hmm. And it's very challenging because therapists in most states, they're not allowed to, they could lose their license for misgendering a child. They can lose their license for not affirming someone's gender. So a lot of these therapists where people go in with gender dysphoria, they go into this therapist and the therapist has to say, yes, you are valid in how you are feeling and yes, you are a woman if you say you're a woman. So a lot of these therapists are conditioned to believe that because if they don't, they'll lose their job. So then when they go to talk to somebody else about this issue, they're also telling you, oh, they're, they're, they need to, to become a woman or they're going to kill themselves. And they, they tell you that. And so if you go in and say, I'm uncomfortable by a man being in my locker room, they say, you know, it's your own bias that thinks that they're a, a harm to women, that they, they are a woman. So you have to believe that they are. 
Um, so I think that's very challenging. And obviously there's therapists that don't do this and there's therapists that are more understanding to why people might be uncomfortable. But generally speaking, a lot of them are threatened with their license if they don't treat patients with gender dysphoria this way. Or from the sounds of it, you know, kind of validate that viewpoint as being the one correct way that everyone has to think. Is yeah. That, that's kind of the sense I'm getting here. Yeah, of course. They want, they want one belief. They want everyone to agree on one single thing. It's a, actually a completely different approach to, <laughs> to therapy, right? And it's very interesting that you describe it as a kind of, did you say thought reform? Yeah, thought yeah. reform, re-education, I'd say those are accurate descriptions. It's fascinating. I, like, I, just, I hadn't really thought of it that way until we're, we're discussing it here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So you, but you said you had your own therapist. Was this uh, outside, but also in the same vein, or like? No, you, yeah. I just had someone I worked with just to talk about, you know, in general, like overall, just school and life and okay. things like that. Um, but it was just very interesting because you know they always speak about it as if they speak about it from the perspective of they have transgender clients themselves and that they need to transition or they're they can't stand the, their own body and they're, they're going to commit suicide if they don't, you know, get to be a woman in, in every sense of society. So I just thought it was very interesting. And, and speaking to other therapists, I've met a few of the therapists that were on um, the What is a Woman documentary. There was a reunion and I got to meet with, with them uh, just knowing, like, they're saying that they are going to be threatened to lose their license if they don't affirm these people's genders. And also that in situations where there's a husband and a wife and one parent wants to uh, transition the child and the other one doesn't, that the court always rules with the parent that wants to affirm. And I thought that was very interesting that that's been ex ex accepted as what we have to do, as the right thing to do. There's never, there hasn't been an instance, at least that I know of, where they you know, side with the parent that doesn't want to change this kid's gender. So I thought that was very interesting that someone somewhere has decided that the right thing to do is to affirm. And I don't know where that came from, I don't know who came up with that, but I, it is very interesting. How did things change in the school overall, other than the swim team? Like, because that's something that, that you saw happening as well. Yeah, so I mentioned this when I talked to Matt um, in one of my interviews, but universities I always thought were a place of higher education and it in my mind at you know 17 16 when i was looking at colleges this was discussion this was debate i anticipated i would go to college and i would meet people from all walks of life all different backgrounds and everyone would have different opinions i always thought that of college i thought college was a place you go and you debate and i got to college and i found that that wasn't the case and that um we had Candace Owens come talk on campus my freshman year, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. We have a conservative speaker, and we have plenty of liberal ones. But as I went through college, I saw that that was happening less and less. And in fact, they would protest if anyone would try to bring someone even remotely right-leaning on campus. And I started thinking, this is not what I thought college was going to be, that there was just a lack of debate. and then. I always kind of had this idea in the back of my mind by the time I got to junior year. And then senior year was when this situation happened to me. And I tried to write an opinion piece for the school newspaper and they were publishing several different opinion pieces that were pro-Leah swimming. And they couldn't find a single person to write one that was in opposition. 
And then when I went to do that, it was retracted because it was too offensive. So I just saw that there was, there was no debate. They wanted everyone to think the same thing, and there was no room for dissenting viewpoints. And that's something I never expected when I went to college. I knew that colleges were more left-leaning, but I always thought there was room for the, the opposite opinion. And by the end of college, I found that that wasn't the case. Let's touch on this op-ed for a moment. So it was actually published. For about two hours, I think. I don't know what the exact timestamp is, but yes. Um, so what, what was in there? I mean, I, I've, I've looked at it, yes. but tell me, tell me what was in yeah. there. Yeah. It didn't really talk about Leah, to be honest. Um, it was just mentioning the, it was dissecting the policy the NCAA put into place and why men are still stronger than women. It was analyzing the finishing times at the Olympics of what percentage the men beat the women by. It was analyzing track and field and how men on average jump this much further. Um, so it was just a lot of statistics, a lot of analysis on the policy. In an original draft, I think this got cut, I did use the fact that if you transition from a woman to a man, you don't have to sit out any time at all, um, which mm. shows that they acknowledge at the very least that women are weaker on average than men, right? Because if you transition from a woman to a man, you don't have to sit out at all. But if you transition from a man to a woman, you have to wait a year. So that at the very least acknowledges that there is a difference, but that's, that's all that they acknowledged. And there's a lot of studies that have shown that taking cross-sex um, hormones do not change your skeletal structure. They don't change your muscle mass. They can't change the size of your lungs or your heart. And I think what's very interesting about the policy is that they only really discuss testosterone. And there's many hormones in the human body that are not mentioned. And it's very fascinating that they've chosen this one hormone to be the most, the, the, the only tell of athletic performance, which is completely false. You can't have one singular hormone in the human body that's related to all um, athletic performance. So I thought that was very interesting that they just chose one thing to focus on and everything else didn't matter. I want to touch on this one thing that you just said, the, the muscle mass. You're saying there isn't, there isn't a shift in muscle mass with this replacement therapy? Or? There is, you do become weaker, um, but the overall structure of it, so if you continue to, um, to work out, during it, you, you can still maintain some level of muscle mass. It's not, right, your muscle mass is not dependent on the hormone. If you continue to work out muscles, your muscles will get stronger. Um, and the baseline that men have muscles is higher than the baseline women do. So of course, yeah, of course cross-sex hormones do make men weaker in some way. I'm not denying that, that's obviously true. But if you continue to work out on it, you can still build muscle mass at a rate that's higher than an average woman could. Right. Yeah. Well, no, see, it's very interesting. Uh, I haven't quite thought about the nuance of this, but again, you know, if you're obviously in competition, you're incentivized to try to win, right? Mm -hmm. This is the whole point. So if you have, you know, you're obviously going to try to minimize your weaken, you becoming weaker as much as possible. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's a, a, I, when I think about this stuff, it's just, I feel like it's ignoring a lot of the incentive structures that exist, the incentives that people have that are kind of obvious. Like, yeah. And I think also not to, like, Leah was not nefarious in any of this, but it's not, these policies are allowing for people that are. 
right? You could have somebody who, you know, can just say that they're going to be transitioning only have to wait a year. And if you continue to work out at a very aggressive rate during that time, you can, you know, sort of train past some of these uh, disadvantages you might be getting from taking cross-sex hormones, right? If you continue to work out your muscles, you can maintain to some extent the muscle mass that you had prior to taking cross-sex hormones. So it's just very interesting that, again, not to say that any transgender athlete that's currently competing is um, doing it for bad reasons, but it opens the door for people that might be. And I think that's something that's very scary to set. And again, in a perfect world, I would love for us to just say every single person competing in the opposite sex category is doing it just because they're going to kill themselves if they don't, or they're going to be depressed if they don't. But based on these policies, we can't ensure that. And I think we have to make rules to set up for the people that are going to break them for bad reasons, not the people that are, act are more common to, do, to switch over or more common to want to participate in the opposite sex. So I think that's something we need to consider. And no one really talks about that because, again, obviously we want to assume that people are going to do the right thing, but we can't. As a society, there's always going to be people who break rules for the wrong reasons. Well, and those people, you know, cause a disproportionate amount of harm, right? And you see that actually in all sorts of statistics that I've been looking at. You know, so given uh, a bit of Epoch Times history, you know, of course, we were founded by Chinese Americans back in the day. Um, it was very interesting for me to discover that you're actually Taiwanese American. And yes. you've, you've had, uh, you know, your grandparents were actually quite active in Taiwan and in, uh, you know, diplomacy and the political scene. Uh, and some of what you've learned from them actually is, I guess, operative here, which I, I think is a very, very interesting connection. I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so something that um, is part of my family history is my grandfather worked for the government um, in many different ways. He did journalism, he was a diplomat, he was born in Tokyo actually, so he worked a lot um, to try to get uh, the Japanese media to help cover what was going on in Taiwan in terms of reunification or people who were against reunification. And so a big part of my family history is him encouraging all viewpoints. Something he worked very hard on was the idea of freedom of press to then encourage freedom of speech. And when this happened to me, it was a freedom of speech issue because I wrote an article that was pulled. And that was something that really turned on my you know, gears and saying, oh, this is, this is like my family history. I got to go do what my grandfather did. Um, so that was very interesting to have that perspective of knowing what countries can look like without freedom of speech. And that's something that is very scary. So like the Urba incident, um, where they were killing a bunch of people that had viewpoints that dissented what the government wanted. Obviously, we're not there as America. But I see how starting with uh, restricting freedom of press and freedom of speech gets you there. And I think that's something that we're not there yet as America. But if we don't continue to fight back, we could end up in a situation where people who even think differently are not allowed to live in that country, or, or they get banished, or they, worse, they get killed. You know, uh, for the benefit of our audience, if you, I think a lot of people might not be familiar with the Urba incident, yeah. as you call it. Just explain what that was briefly. Yeah, it, was, um, it happened in Taiwan. They brought basically 
all educated people were killed off because they were worried that they would um, they would they would just change the the view and encourage people to think differently um, and be against the government. So that was a big thing. It was is it, it was an attempt to suppress the, the the thought of the people. They didn't want an uprising. Um, so that was very very scary. And I, my grandfather's family was members were almost killed during that. A lot of them actually ended up getting banished instead and they had to move to other countries. Um, so it's very real and when governments don't like what the people think, they will come in and do something crazy like that. I think there's a lot of people in our society today that are afraid for very good reason to voice their perspective, right? I mean, all the way from it would be very inconvenient to, you know, I could lose my career to I'll be ostracized, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of laughing, but it, there's this whole spectrum of very legitimate concern that people may have. So tell me a little bit about your process. It took you a while to decide ultimately to come out. So tell me what you were thinking originally and how that evolved. Yeah, I think part of human nature is to want to be liked. And it's very difficult to say something that you know people don't agree with. Um, and so that's something that was very challenging for me where I voiced these p opinions during the season when I was on the team and I lost a lot of friends and a lot of teammates sent me messages that weren't so nice and people told me never to talk to them again. And I think part of me said, okay, well, if the season ends and I never speak about this ever again, everyone who didn't like me last year will come back to me and we'll all be friends again and everything will be nice. And obviously in the last year, none of those people ever came back to me and said, let's be friends again. I know the season is over and you're not speaking about this anymore, so it doesn't matter. But no, none of those people did because I already upset them, but I think part of me hoped that they would. And I think as a society, as, as a person, as anyone, you want to be liked and you want to feel, you don't want to feel ostracized, like you said, from anyone. But unfortunately, once you speak about these things, there are going to be people who don't like you, but there's also going to be plenty of people that do like you and do support you. And I've gotten a lot of support from people in my life that I haven't talked to for years. Girls from high school have reached out. A kid I went to middle school with that I haven't talked to in 10 years told me he supported me. Um, so it's just part of, part of the journey. And I think it's really scary to, to think about people might never want to talk to you again or you lose your friends or your family. But unfortunately, we're getting to a point where if we don't speak the truth, then we can't count on somebody else to do it. After all this transpired and now that you've decided to be public, have there been costs? Yeah, definitely. Um, I just had people who generally disagree with the fact that this is a more conservative right-wing issue. That's definitely been a huge concept of people saying, I support that men should not be in women's sports, but you're allowing yourself to get looped into right-wing media and all the other right-wing ideas. And I think that's something that's very interesting to me because you can talk to somebody at any point in your life or any point in the day, and you can disagree with them on something, and you can agree with them on something else. And you're allowed to talk about the thing you agree with, and you're not going to be tied to that person just because you're associated with them. And that's what's something I think people are kind of losing track of in this country. And this is on both sides, right? You say, oh, well, if you sympathize with this person on one issue, then you are signing up for every other thing that they believe. 
And I, I don't agree with that. I think I can talk to anyone who's willing to talk to me about this, and I can disagree with them on every other issue. But if this is the one issue we agree on, then why can't we have a conversation? So that's been something that's been hard for a lot of people in my life in particular, where they're saying, yes, I agree with you doing this, but you can't sign up for being a part of all these other right-wing ideas or these conservative ideas when I haven't talked about any of them. So you don't view yourself as a conservative? I think that I am. Um, I definitely feel like I'm on that side of ideology, aside from this issue. But what I'm saying is that I don't think you know, you have to have a conversation with someone and agree with every single one of those issues, right? Like I can, I can have liberal friends that agree with me on this particular point, but they can also disagree with me on everything else and that shouldn't change our friendship. I mean, what you're saying just sounds way too logical to me. <laughs> and jokes aside, there's a kind of a weird totalizing kind of, it's just such an odd assumption. Yeah, and I find, it, I find it very interesting. So for example, Martina Narutilova, champion tennis player, she's with us on this issue. I've met her a few times now to work on stuff related to, you know, getting biological men out of women's sports. That's amazing. Okay, total legend. I, I loved watching her plays, but... Yeah, she's a, I can tell you a bunch of stories yeah. about her, but Martina is incredibly liberal and a lifelong Democrat and will always vote Democrat, but she's against this issue. And I think what's interesting to me is, so I follow her on Twitter, right? And she's reposting all of these Democratic issues and supporting all her Democratic candidates and, you know, great, that's her opinion, wonderful. Um, but then this issue, she, she reposts like things that I'm in, and I'm on the Daily Wire, which is known like as a right-wing um, organization, and she's still posting a video the Daily Wire helped me produce. And then she gets these hate comments accusing her of, you know, disrespecting her LGBT family, whatever, and saying that she's, you know, selling out to the right wing and that she's trying to become a right wing media star. And every single other thing she posts is left wing. And I think that's so crazy that every single issue needs to be party lines. And I know it's just something I never expected would have happened, right? There's, there's always, one conservative thing that a liberal can think or one liberal thing a conservative can think. Not every single person matches with every single opinion that the party that they generally vote for goes. And that's something I've started to see that it's turning into this crazy madness. And even with this affirmative action, I never even heard people on the left talking about it so much. And then it was overruled and suddenly it's the biggest issue that they've ever faced. And I, I said, am I naive for thinking that I didn't think that many Democrats were that passionate about this, and suddenly they are? So it's something I've noticed that's been very interesting that as soon as your party takes a stance on it, you will have to suddenly become an expert and an activist on that subject. And that's something I think we need to do away with as Americans. You can generally vote a certain way, but you, sh you can have things on the party you vote for that you disagree with. And you should be allowed to voice that opinion without being accused of going for the other side. So what's next for you? Uh, a lot. Um, I, think, I think really I want to try to bridge the gap on this issue. I know there's a lot of left-leaning and right-leaning individuals that are very against it. And I think for us to come to a consensus on this, we do need support from all sides. And I do want to focus on talking to um, Democratic leaders that might be um, for 
banning uh, biological men from women's sports. And I think we can find a way to appeal to them and make them see our side. I think it'll be very important to uh, help protect women and women's spaces. And uh, in what about sort of the big, you said this is much bigger than just this one issue. What about that side, the, the broader yeah. picture? Yeah, I think that Obviously sports is the most obvious where you see the outcomes directly with times or points or however the, the game is scored. Um, but there are more invisible situations where this is happening. For example, in women's prisons, there's a lot of um, biological men that identify as women and are sex offenders that want to go into these women's spaces and harm the prisoners. And obviously people who are in prison are there to serve for something that they did wrong, but they don't deserve even more uh, harm and, and pain from that situation by being put in there with a predatory man. Um, and so I think that's another fight that, and again, prisoners don't have voices the way that I do, the way that Riley does, the way that the rest of us who are speaking about this do. And so I think part of our platform should be to help protect people who don't have voices and also younger girls that we don't know if their sports are going to be affected by this yet we should also speak for them. So I think that's the biggest thing, is to try to voice for people who don't have a voice. Well, Paula Scanlon, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining Paula Scanlon and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick.